Welcome, this is Marcia for Radio Eye, and today I will be reading National Geographic magazine dated March 2022. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Please join me now for the continuation of the article I began last time titled Life Goes On by Rania Abu Zaid. Its first big project was to repair 580 homes after the Beirut blast with about a million dollars the charity quickly raised. Charbel and around 20 of the 400 or so Lebanese Australians who trace their heritage to Memna also donate about $100,000 a year to their village. If it wasn't for our children abroad, Joseph Youssef, the head of Memna'a's principal council, told me, our village would have suffered a lot and been humiliated. The Australians helped buy a diesel generator to keep the lights on, and they pay for the fuel. They raised money for a pump to ensure homes have water, and they provide monthly stipends for the 24 families that don't have relatives abroad. The aid is handled by the council because, as Charbel says, we don't want to impugn families, people's dignity by directly knocking on doors and saying, this is $100 from Australia. We want to help everyone without hurting their pride. Beit Melat relies on an even older diaspora, Mexicans of Lebanese heritage, whose ancestors first left in the 1800s. Those early immigrants helped a later wave of relatives who fled during the Lebanese Civil War. We have 7,000 people in the diaspora, and the majority are in Mexico, Shaheen Shaheen, the head of the municipal council, told me. There are so many in Mexico from Bait Malat that there is a town near Mexico City called Bait Malat. In 2021, the diaspora helped raise more than $150,000 to install solar panels on the homes of every one of the 96 families that live year-round in Lebanon's Beit Malat. Kachin said he received donations from some people who no longer even had family in Lebanon. They've never been here. They don't speak Arabic. They don't know Beit Malat, he told me, but they know that their ancestors are buried here and they want to help the village. On a warm day, I had coffee with Tofik. Giatani on the balcony of his palatial villa in Beit Malat. The 79-year-old fabric merchant left Lebanon in 1968 and is one of the many Lebanese Mexicans who helped the town. He spends several months a year in Lebanon. His view looks out on a beautifully terraced orchard with fruit and olive trees. A single pine soars above the other vegetation. It was planted by my late grandmother in 1880 or 1890, Gaitani told me. I asked him a question that I have difficulty answering for myself. Why was he still connected to Lebanon? What compelled him to return? This secret pull, he said, it either needs a psychologist or I don't know what to explain it. He paused for a long time. Our blood draws us back here, he said. Despite all the things that I see that are wrong here, all the things that don't work, I can't help it. I can't help but return. It is difficult to love a country in turmoil that excels at exporting its children. Lebanon has long been a place where people leave to flee war, political instability, poverty, and famine, to pursue knowledge and learning, to reunite with family in the diaspora, and simply to forge a better life. Members of my family first left in the late 1800s. So many Lebanese are now grappling with the same question, should they stay or should they go? 
Since 2019, requests for passports have increased tenfold, creating a backlog that means waiting well over a year for an initial appointment just to submit the paperwork. Those who can't wait or can't afford passports are turning to a sea that, since antiquity, has held the promise of new lands and new lives. Dozens have died on treacherous crossings to Europe. Many parents I know have left with their families. One of my friends who is staying in is fond of repeating a common phrase, the country is not a hotel to check out of. Perhaps, but unlike the Lebanese state, hotels provide basic services. Most days I vacillate between exasperated love and simmering rage. I mourn the pain that the economic crash has caused and the unaccountability of a selfish political class that won't help its people. I am a daughter of the diaspora, and I am part of the motherland. As my mother did throughout her life, I navigate between two worlds. Like many Lebanese, I leave the country for extended periods, but I cannot ever forsake it. When I entered my blast-ravaged apartment in August 2020, the memory of my late grandmother walked in with me. I remembered her telling me how she couldn't even retrieve a fork from the wreckage of her home, and I considered myself lucky. In a kitchen drawer, I still had cutlery. I repaired my apartment, vowing that I wasn't fixing it only to abandon it. That would feel like a betrayal, a surrender. When a place is home, it takes a lot to sever the bonds of custom and affection, although I know that I am privileged. Unlike so many, courtesy of my Australian passport and dollars in my pocket, I have a guaranteed exit and the choice to take it. In the explosion, every pane of glass in my apartment was shattered, except an antique Trifora window that I had customized into an installation and mounted on a wall. In cursive Arabic calligraphy, the artwork spells out a desire, one that my parents held before me. Farouz's lyrics stroll across the three arched windows in bold black script, conveying the hope that should I find myself elsewhere, the breeze will carry me home. The next article, Return to Wild Waters, by Stephanie Pearson. On Lake Superior's Apostle Islands National Lakeshore, nature has the power to create, destroy, and regenerate. On a lake that's notoriously harsh to humans, the Apostle Islands are a relatively sheltered place, but that doesn't mean they're safe. This is no place for amateurs, says Dave Cooper. He's piling the Ardea, a 25-foot aluminum landing craft typically built for the Pacific Ocean, through Lake Superior's choppy waters on the way back from Devil's Island, 14 miles offshore. Today the wind is blowing from the northeast at 20 to 25 knots, and the waves are 5 feet high. Cooper, the Apostle Island's National Lake Shores Cultural Resource Manager, is running the troughs and surfing the crests. It's like riding a horse, he says. I'm just trying to make it a smooth ride. Over the course of three decades working as an archaeologist on Lake Superior, Cooper has participated in dozens of harrowing search and rescue missions. The apostles are a chain of islands that attracts people to paddle long distances, says Cooper. In theory, it offers more protection, but it also offers enticement to get people in over their heads. Over th other threats loom. With climate change, the lake is warming at an alarming rate of at least one degree Fahrenheit every decade. Storms are becoming increasingly fierce, battering infrastructure such as docks, causing shoreline erosion, and increasing the amount of sediment in the lake, which can lead to legal to algae blooms. But the apostles have their devotees, such as Tom Irvin, executive director of the National Parks of Lake Superior Foundation. 
His great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather worked together as lighthouse keepers on Outer Island. The apostles get in you and hold you, says Irvin. That's what it's done for my family. It's part of our collective soul. In the summer of 2020, Irvin introduced National Geographic explorer and photographer David Gutenfelder to the islands. Gutenfelder, an experienced kayaker, decided to test the waters on an ambitious 18-day trip, during which he planned to paddle to as many of the archipelago's 22 islands as possible. The lake has such incredible power, he says, I got hooked. And so in August 2021, I joined Gutenfelder for a segment of his kayaking journey and explored other islands on my own. Along the way, I met with conservationists, scientists, and community members, many of whom have lived and worked here for decades. Their backgrounds were diverse, but everyone shared the same deep veneration for the apostles. It's easy to be reverential, surrounded by this, says Neil Hoke, a retired interpretive ranger who has worked in the park for 35 years. We're in an old-growth forest on Outer Island, where the towering hemlock, white pine, yellow birch, and cedar are so thick that sun streaming through the sparse understory appears like shafts of light in a cathedral. A few hundred yards away, the waves of Lake Superior are crashing against the shore. The forest dampens the roar, and we're enveloped in near silence. Earlier that afternoon, our group had landed our kayaks at the northern tip of 7,999-acre Outer, which sits 28 miles into Lake Superior and is one of the least visited of the Apostles. Despite its remoteness, Outer was heavily logged starting around 1883. Between 1942 and 1963, lumberjacks flew in via light aircraft to cut yellow birch and sugar maple to manufacture baby cribs. When they were finished, the logging camp was left to rot. The towering trees surrounding us right now, however, were spared. This is probably the same as it looked 400 years ago, says Hauk. Wilderness, as defined by the 1964 Wilderness Act, is an area where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man. The reality in the apostles, though, is that humans have nurtured, utilized, and domesticated these islands for centuries. The result is a postmodern wilderness, one of the rare places that, with time and proper management, have reclaimed much of their original splendor. But if we view the apostles only as a now pristine wilderness in which to recreate, we miss pondering how the Ojibwe thrived in this rugged terrain for centuries, how European settlers tried, oftentimes unsuccessfully, to tame it, and later, how they extracted resources that built great cities. The layers of human history were started with nomadic hunter-gatherers who followed caribou around the Lake Superior Basin 11,000 years ago. The earliest archaeological evidence of seasonal camps within the Apostle Islands is 5,000 years old. More than 400 years ago, following a prophecy, the Ojibwe moved west from the St. Lawrence River Valley and settled on Mooning Wanakaaning Minis, or home of the yellow-breasted woodpecker, which is now Madeline Island. Madeline Island is our homeland, says Christopher D. Boyd, chairman of the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, the anglicized word for Ojibwe whose 14,541-acre reservation sits adjacent to the park's mainland shoreline. That's the hub of our nation, but all of our islands are our home. The largest island in the archipelago, 15,359-acre Madeline, 
is the only apostle not included in the national lakeshore. In the late 1600s, French fur traders established a trading post on Madeleine, which grew to become an important commercial hub on Lake Superior. It's also where the Ojibwe leader Kesha Waishke, chief buffalo, was born around 1759. In 1852, when he was in his 90s, he set off in a birch bark canoe for Washington, D.C., where he met with President Millard Fillmore to protest the removal of the Ojibwe to reservations farther west by the U.S. government. At that time, the journey was deemed a success. Fillmore allowed the Ojibwe to remain on Lake Superior. In 1855, a wave of European immigrants began arriving in the Apostles when the Sioux Locks opened the Great Lakes to shipping and western expansion. To guide the ships through the treacherous superior waters, the U.S. Lighthouse Service built nine lighthouses in the Apostles region over the course of six decades. All had intricate Fresnel lances. The only one still in its tower is on display at the Devil's Island Lighthouse. By the late 19th century, the fertile waters surrounding the islands had become one of the largest commercial fishery sources for lake herring and whitefish, on the western end of Lake Superior, while the island's interiors were being slashed by timber companies quarried for Lake Superior sandstone and farmed. With the arrival of railways, northwestern Wisconsin had also become a popular tourist destination. In the 1920s, President Calvin Coolidge set up his summer White House on the Brule River near the Apostles. Despite their appeal as a haven from the big cities, the Apostles did not meet the exacting standards of the National Park Service. In 1930, landscape architect Harlan Kelsey arrived to evaluate the archipelago for potential protection. During his visit, fires raged on some islands, and he predicted the whole area would soon become a smoldering, desolate waste. His report declared that the hand of man has mercilessly and, in a measure, irrevocably destroyed the island's virgin beauty. After the heaviest logging ceased around 1930, a surprising thing happened. When left alone by humans, the isolated forest started to regenerate. It would take three more decades of regrowth and tireless advocacy by Wisconsin Senator Gaylord Nelson to convince Congress that these islands were worthy of protection. In 1970, President Richard Nixon finally signed the legislation that declared the Apostle Islands a national lakeshore. Today, the archipelago is a thriving habitat for more than 800 plant species, including bird's-eye primrose, elegant ground cell, and the forest-loving coral root orchid. Many of the island's forests have a soft, lush understory of Canada yew, a green shrub with tubular red cones nicknamed deer candy that has all but disappeared on the adjacent mainland. The island's deer population has been kept in close check by the National Park Service, and the resulting abundance of Canada U contributes to an ideal habitat for the American Martin, a state-endangered mammal that had all but disappeared from the islands before making a slow recovery. It's now found on 11 islands. Given their complex biogeography, the islands also support a diverse population of other predators, such as black bear, bobcat, coyote, and gray wolf. Avian life thrives as well, the islands are home to around 140 species of breeding birds and 200 species of migratory birds. In the summer of 2021, the gravelly sand spits of Long and Outer Islands were nesting sites for five of the 74 known nesting pairs of the vulnerable but growing Great Lakes population of piping plover. 
They're an important bioindicator of Great Lakes sandscapes, not to mention an important part of the region's nat natural heritage. The National Lakeshore Islands even serve as a refuge for a finite group of humans. There are five remaining estates, two on Sand Island and three on Rocky Island, whose families have negotiated lifetime use and occupancy agreements with the National Park Service. Their fishing shacks, cabins, compounds, and docks are owned by the Park Service, but each family works hard to maintain them in accordance with the rules of historic preservation. In exchange, they have exclusive use until the last person named on the agreement dies. Phoebe Gench, one of the last remaining islanders, as they're called, describes her family's connection to Sand Island this way. It's our church, our home, and our spiritual center. In June 2021, Jim Pete, a tribal elder from the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, whose Ojibwe name is Gayoshk, or Seagull, invited us to join a group of nine 13- to 18-year-old boys from Red Cliff on their five-day camping trip to 2,949-acre Sand Island. Four miles from the mainland, Sand is one of the closest and most popular islands to visit, with its 1881 lighthouse and sea caves. Between the 1890s and 1944, a vibrant community of Norwegian fishermen, farmers, and their families lived here, the National Lakeshore's only year-round residence. On the island's south end is the still-inhabited settlement of Shaw Point. When we arrive at the campsite, nestled in a grove of hardwoods above a sandy beach on the island's eastern shoreline, we find the campers engrossed in a game of capture the flag, a can of mosquito repellent standing in for the flag. Scott Babineau, a tribal leader and the camp director, is frying fish with three other staff members, while corn on the cob cooks in the embers of the fire. The Ojibwe campers are here, Babineau explains, to discern a life's purpose with traditional activities such as wigwam and fire building, fishing and plant identification, as well as discussing challenging topics like intergenerational trauma. The goal is to help the kids start thinking ahead, says Babineau. I want to help the kids understand that their actions have consequences. The Apostle Islands are at the center of the Ojibwe migration story, the spot from which the Ojibwe tribe first grew and, like a tree, has spread its branches in every direction, according to the writings of famed 19th-century Ojibwe scholar William Warren. Despite the island's importance, however, many of the kids had never had the opportunity to set foot on any of them until this trip. I'd say 90% of our tribal members have never been to the islands, Chairman Boyd later told me. It's a haven for tourists, but you have to accept to have access to a boat, and that isn't easy to get a hold of. He adds that the band hasn't always felt welcomed by the National Park Service. But things are changing. In June 2021, for the first time in the park's history, a ceremony was held during which the Red Cliff Band's flag was hoisted at the Little Sand Bay Visitor Center. After dinner around the campfire, Babineau announces that the trip must end prematurely the next morning because the winds are forecast to pick up the next afternoon, making it too dangerous for the long paddle back to the mainland. The teens groan in response. When I ask them what their favorite part of the experience has been, I get a volley of answers from surfing waves and swimming to being free from video games and electricity. Camper Cody Engels says, it's a better version of school and the food is really good. Then he adds, plus I learned how to survive out in nature. This is wisdom gathered from the elders, Gayoshk, 
tells me. It's important that we talk about how we are supposed to be. The next article, Spider Sense by Jason Bittell. Spiders are remarkably diverse. There are more than 50,000 known species, including diving bell spiders that live mostly underwater, arctic wolf spiders that can thrive north of the arctic circle, and giant spiny trapdoor spiders that can reach the ripe old age of 43. But many people never get arachnids a chance. When people think about spiders, they think of something creepy, says Javier Osnar, a Madrid-based biologist and photographer who has built up an impressive kaleidoscope of spider images, particularly from the rainforest of Ecuador, where he lived for three years. But when you look closer, you will see an amazing world. Take the bold jumping spider, the charismatic arachnid staring you down from uh, an opposite um, cliff. Asner says these spiders, which can be found throughout North America, seemed friendly and were not fearful of him. Only about a dozen spider species are known to be harmful to people. A few jumping spider species also have excellent color vision, so when they turn that puppy-dog gaze your way, they're actually seeing you. Then there are the fascinating ant-mimicking crab spiders in the genus Aphantochylus, native to South America. Their broad horned faces are strikingly similar to those of the ants they prey on, allowing them to sneak up on their meals without being noticed. As masters of disguise, the predators can be difficult to find, let alone photograph. In fact, Osnar has only seen them in Ecuador three or four times. Navigating such quirks of spider biology make his work both challenging and fun, says Osnar, who often spends long nights in the jungle trying to catch spiders in action. Photographing ogre-faced spiders in Ecuador, for instance, took him several years. Rather than weaving traditional webs, these big-eyed, long-legged arachnids create square nets of silk that they hold with their legs and swat at passing insects. However, the animals are skittish and will tuck their snares away and hide if suddenly approached. To capture the behavior in all its glory, the photographer had to become a sit-and-wait predator himself, spending long periods silent and unmoving. Then one night, as an ogre-faced spider readied its attack, with a click and a flash, Osnar finally got his shot. The next article is from the April 2022 National Geographic, Patriarchy is Not Destiny, by Angela Saini. The philosopher Kwame Anthony Apea once asked why some people feel the need to believe in a more equal past to picture a more equal future. Many of us look at the stranglehold that gender-based oppression has on our societies and wonder if there was a time when man didn't have this much power, when femininity and masculinity didn't mean what they do now. When we search for powerful women in ancient history, when we try to identify precedents for equality in the distance, distant past, perhaps we also betray our longing for an alternative in a world in which we fear there may be none. Patriarchy, given all power and authority to the father, can sometimes seem like a vast conspiracy stretching into deep time. The word itself has become devastatingly monolithic, encompassing all the ways in which the world's women, girls, and non-binary people are abused and unfairly treated, from domestic violence and rape to the gender pay gap and moral double, double standards. The sheer scale of it feels out of our control, but how old and how universal is it really? Historians, anthropologists, archaeologists, and feminists have been fascinated by this question, and as a science journalist, I've been preoccupied with it for years. In 1973, sociologist Stephen Goldberg 
published The Inevitability of Patriarchy, a book arguing that fundamental biological differences between men and women run so deep that in every iteration of human society, a patriarchal system would always win out. Whichever way the pie was cut, men, in his view naturally more powerful and aggressive, would end up with a bigger slice. The problem with this is male domination isn't universal. There are many matrilineal societies organized through mothers rather than fathers, with name and property passed from mother to daughter around the world. In some regions, matrilineal traditions are thought to date back thousands of years. For decades, Western scholars have invented theories to explain why these societies exist. Some claim that matriliney survives only among hunter-gatherers or simple agriculturists, not in large-scale societies. Others say it works best when men are often away at war, leaving women in charge at home. Still others argue that matriliney ends as soon as people start keeping cattle because men want to control these resources, linking patriarchy to property and land. Always, though, matrilineal societies are framed as unusual cases, beset by special strains as fragile and rare, possibly even doomed to extinction, as Washington State University anthropologist Lyndon, Linda Stone puts it. In academic circles, the problem is known as the matrilineal puzzle, Patriliny, on the other hand, is seen to need no explanation. It just is. In 2019, researchers at Vanderbilt University attempted to solve this puzzle, analyzing matrilineal communities to see if they did have anything in common. Globally, 590 societies were known to be traditional, traditionally patrilineal. 362 were bilateral, meaning they acknowledged descent through both parents, and another 160 were recognized as matrilineal. Biologist Nicole Crianza, who worked on the research, says the team tested popular theories about matriliney like those above, but none held true in every case. One factor that did seem to affect a society's move away from matriliney, says Crianza, was when populations had property, not in terms of land, but movable, transmissible wealth, when if your offspring inherited this thing that you have, they would be potentially better off. But even this wasn't consistent. Each society was just too complicated to reduce to simple factors, be they biological, environmental, or anything else. As far as, as far, as far in as you can zoom, she says, you can find more and more complexity. Anthropologists insist there are no female-led matriarchies, if by matriarchy we mean the direct opposite of patriarchy. In his 1680 text, Patriarcha, the English political theorist Sir Robert Filmer defined patriarchy as the natural state of a father over his family and a king over his state. But what we usually see in matrilineal societies is women and men sharing power. Even if significant authority lies with brothers or uncles, it's often authority that depends upon circumstances or diffuse power more than absolute. What characterizes matrilineal societies, as Stone has written, is considerable variation in authority, power, and influence among both males and females. There would have been even more variation in the past. In prehistory, social norms were constantly moving. What can appear, from one point of view, to be instability resolving itself, a shift from matriliney to patriliney, for instance, may, from another point of view, be a move from one relatively stable state to another, Crianza explains. 
This concludes readings from National Geographic magazine for today. Your reader has been Marsha. If you've enjoyed hearing this content, please give us a call at 859-422-6390. Thank you for listening and have a great day.